we dive into this text that we just read in 1 Timothy 6, I personally can't help but feel as though, you know, at the end of that, that last song, they're just singing, holy, holy, holy. You know, I, I don't know what that was like for you, but uh, when I hear that song, there's just times where I feel transported into the throne room. And that is exactly what Paul does in his instructions to Timothy here in this text. He transports him into the throne room, and we want to look at that. But not to get ahead of ourselves, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be looking at those verses there, 11 through 16 this morning. And the message is titled, Fighting Faith. And by way of introduction, this is something we all know implicitly, uh, but we don't always acknowledge explicitly, which is that you cannot coast in the Christian life. There's no cruise control setting in following Jesus. So if you're not gaining ground, chances are you're losing ground. Because it is uphill, battling sin, battling the flesh, battling the devil. Not only can we not coast as individuals, but the church as a whole cannot afford to coast. And in particular, the pastors and elders leading a church cannot afford to coast spiritually. Because we're not just fighting our own private sin, our own private demons. We're also fighting public sin. We're fighting unbelief. We are going out into the world making disciples. That's our mandate. We're trying to bring the gospel to bear everywhere in the culture around us. And I think so often we get discouraged because we feel constantly like we're on the defensive as Christians. But we can't afford to only be on the defensive. We also have to be on the offensive. In fact, the best offense, or the best defense rather, is a good offense in the Christian walk. In other words, the best defense sometimes is to be offensively out there fighting for the faith. Sometimes that's the best defense that you can have in your own personal spiritual walk as well. And so what Paul does with his protege, Timothy, is he gives him some final instructions. And he gives him this this momentous charge that we're going to look at here this morning. And he's essentially charging Timothy to have this sort of offensive fighting faith. And he gives Timothy, in particular, five imperatives that we're going to look at. Uh, But first he says to flee. He says to pursue Third, he says to fight, he says to take hold, and he also says to keep. And we'll talk about what the object of all of those commands are. But what I want us to pay attention to at the onset is that those are all very active verbs. None of those are passive. All of those involve diligence on Timothy's part. So this is a charge that Timothy's given. This is a charge to the minister. This is a charge to the whole church. And this is a charge to us individual Christians as well. And as we think about how we began the morning in worship and how Paul takes this passage in the direction of worship, our main point this morning, and if you remember nothing else, please remember this, it's that a fighting faith comes by fixing our eyes on the glorified Christ. A fighting faith only comes by fixing our eyes on the glorified Christ. Let me just pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, open our hearts this morning to receive your word. Lord, we come to you tired and broken and and sometimes apathetic about you, about your glory. And yet you invite us into your presence. And as we sing and as we worship and as we hear your word, we're reminded of how glorious you are. Impress that upon us, 
our hearts and minds this week in a way that would last throughout the rest of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and ask that your will would be done in this local church. Amen. So starting in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So let's just take it one phrase at a time. He says, but as for you. So Paul previously has been addressing problems in the church, problems with false teachers, problems with people, as Ricardo shared last week, who think that godliness is a means of personal material gain. But then he moves and addresses Timothy in particular. He's concerned for Timothy. Not even Timothy is immune. You know, we think these Bible characters are sort of idealistic. They're, they're a little bit immune from sin and temptation. There's sort of a halo effect that comes from having your name in the Bible. Well, he's Timothy. I mean, there's two books of scripture named for him. But not even Timothy was immune. Paul is very concerned for Timothy. You can hear the urgency in his voice. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. We can't worry so much about others that we forget to be concerned for ourselves. We can't be so concerned for the problems that we see in the church or the community or the culture or the world that we forget to be on guard ourselves. We can't grit and grind our teeth against those evil prosperity preachers and false teachers out there on television without also recognizing that we can be immune to some of the same types of errors in our hearts. And so Paul directs his instruction towards Timothy, and he calls him man of God. Oh, man of God. Now, that's a term that, if you remember your Old Testament, is a common prophetic idiom. That was an idiom that referred to a prophet. The prophets were referred to as men of God. You see it in Deuteronomy 33. You see it in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27. And the only other place that this is used in the New Testament is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And it's about Timothy again. So we don't know exactly how to interpret this. Is this, a, is this a special title that only refers to someone who's ordained into pastoral ministry? Or is this kind of a general thing that Paul is applying to Timothy? But whatever is exactly is meant by Paul's use of this phrase, we know that he's urging Timothy to take his calling seriously. He's urging him to consider his calling Timothy, as a pastor over a New Testament church, stands in the prophetic line. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, right? All of the prophetic greats. He's placing a random local church pastor named Timothy in that same line. That's something we should all take seriously. Whatever our office is, whether our office is pastor or elder or deacon or just faithful church member, we all are a part of the prophetic line. Not that we are all prophets in the full sense of that term, but we have more prophetic information, more revelation available to us than the Old Testament prophets did. First Peter chapter 1 says these are, these are things where, as the prophets were being told these things, they, they, they inquired as to what spirit or, or manner of person or time that, that the spirit was testifying to them when they testified to the things that were to come. In other words, they didn't know what they were writing about. They didn't understand it. We have the fullness of revelation. And so there is a sense in which all of the men and women in this room can be referred to as men of God because we stand in that prophetic line. We have to take seriously our office, even if our office in the church that we occupy is just faithful church member. There's responsibility that comes with that. 
We have to focus on ourselves and beware that we're immune, we're not immune, rather, and we have to take seriously our office. And then he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And that's the first imperative that we're looking at this morning, is to flee worldly craving. What are these things? The context is everything that came before, in verses 3 all the way down to verse 10, where he talks about the love of money being the root of all sorts of evil. Not money itself, but the love of money, the desire for worldly gain, the desire to get rich. He says, especially if people in ministry, that this craving can be damning. So we know that we can't be at peace with worldly craving ourselves. We can't be at peace with these sorts of worldly desires. We can't just statically resist them. It's not just saying statically, you know, resist this, stand firm. It's actually saying flee, run away from, get as far away from worldly cravings as possible. But especially if you're in ministry. Because he's warning people who were in the local church teaching things that were wrong. You can't mess with the love of money if you're in any type of ministry whatsoever. Because sooner or later, hear this, your compensation will affect your content. In other words, you will say whatever is most controversial or what's most incendiary or what sounds the best in order to keep people interested in you, in order to maintain your platform, in order to continue to see the funding coming in. That's why in chapter 3, verse 3, you see that an elder must not be a lover of money. If an elder or pastor is a lover of money, he's disqualified from office. And so this first injunction that we have is to flee worldly craving. But notice, he doesn't just say flee worldly craving. He follows it up with another instruction right away because you can't flee from sin without running and pursuing something else. And so second, we see again in verse 11 that we are to pursue righteousness. We're to pursue virtue. He actually lists six virtues here. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Let's just take these one at a time and then make some observations about this command to pursue righteousness. Okay, so we're, we've, we've discussed that we need to flee worldly craving. We're pursuing righteousness. So let's look at the six ways in which Paul calls us to, to, to pursue virtue. And then we'll make some observations about what's going on here. Righteousness. Pursue righteousness. Another word for righteousness is justice. It's a word that's thrown around often. We refer to all sorts of things as justice issues, but the idea here is that this is righteousness as God defines it. This is righteousness and justice as God's law defines it, both for yourself internally and externally in your life and the life of those around you as well. 1 Timothy chapter 1.8, Paul says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the lawful use of God's law is to determine what is righteousness. So do we know God's standards? Do we read our Old Testaments? Do we really know his definition of right and wrong? We are to pursue upright living. Second, pursue godliness. We've talked about this word a few times in the course of this series. The word here refers to reverence, devotion to God, or piety is an older term that we don't use too often, but it's connected with this word. It's the idea here of showing honor to whom honor is due. And particularly, this is God-word in its direction. 
So this is not just a private mystical spirituality where I'm having my, my quiet little moments by myself and, and I'm, I'm trying to stir up you know, certain emotions to feel a certain way in the privacy of my home. That's not merely what's meant by godliness. This is actually just being devoted in character to God. So it's important to understand that. And then he says, pursue faith. And faith is a term that gets thrown around often in our context. And often we just refer to it as optimism. We treat it as though it's a synonym for optimism, right? Well, if somebody's being negative, what do you tell them? Well, have faith. Have some faith. That's not the biblical sense of the word. Faith is something that has an external object that looks outside of itself, not within itself. See, optimism is just looking within yourself and saying, well, I'm kind of an optimistic person, so I'm going to feel good about this or that. Faith might look at the situation, might look at itself and realize how bad things are, but it looks outside of itself to an objective object, and that object for the believer is Christ. In fact, faith is what takes hold of Christ. Faith is how we're unified with Christ, and we can only bear all these other fruits, all these other virtues that he's calling us to pursue, righteousness, godliness, if we're taking hold of Christ. If faith is the key, it's the gateway to pursuing these other things. Without faith, without taking hold of Christ and his promises by faith, good luck fleeing worldly cravings, good luck pursuing righteousness, godliness, and so forth. And faith, as a result, knows how far it has to go. We all have heard the quote from a conversation Jesus has in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. He's speaking to a man who's daughter, son or daughter, was demon-possessed. The man says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So if we're looking outside of ourselves, we'll realize that the situation in my life might be dire. I might not be feeling particularly optimistic, but I'm not looking to myself. I'm looking to Christ. And we're to pursue faith, not just have faith. Hey, have some faith. Not just, it's not just something that you have. You pursue it. You want to grow in your capacity to look to Christ, to cling to Christ. Are you trusting in Christ more now than you were a year ago at this time, or two years ago, or ten years ago, or maybe just six months ago if you've only been in the Lord for a short time? Are we growing in the amount that we trust in Christ? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, And then love. We know that love is the paramount Christian virtue. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, basically lays out this idea that that if we have everything else, all of these other virtues, but not love, we have jack, squat, diddly, nothing. We have absolutely nothing if we have all of those Christian fruits, but not love. And we're supposed to pursue love. This comes out of faith. I think there's a reason that he says pursue faith and then love in that order. Because chapter 1, verse 5 tells us, Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, faith is how we take hold of Christ. And then what's the first and most important, visible, immediate fruit that comes out of our lives is faith. Excuse me, it's, it's love. And, and we're to pursue love. We don't wait until we feel it. We don't wait until we sense it as an emotion. Rather, we choose to love when it's difficult. Love is a commitment, it's a choice, and we're choosing to love even other Christians when that's not easy. Pursue steadfastness, he says next. 
This word means endurance. It means perseverance. It's enduring when suffering and trial come. Because to follow Jesus is to sign up to suffer. Now, how do we respond when trials come? I want to dive into this a little bit more later, but just when sufferings and hardship come, we're, we're so often surprised, aren't we? As if we weren't promised difficulty in life. It almost always catches us off guard when difficulty comes. But we know that to follow Christ is, in many respects, to sign up for suffering. And so we're to be steadfast. And finally, gentleness. We're talking about having a fighting sort of faith. We're talking about a a faith that knows how to go on the offensive. And so I think it's striking that he says that we're also to pursue gentleness. Being steadfast, having a fighting faith, does not mean that we become boorish and we start bulldozing over other people. It means that we're also meek, that we're restrained, that there's a quiet sort of strength that controls itself, that God gives the ability to control itself, that marks the life of a Christian. It's not the same thing as niceness, right? Everybody wants you to be nice. That's sort of just an evangelical thing where you can never say anything that makes anybody upset. But this is true gentleness. This is meekness. This is concern for others. This is caring concern for others and self-restraint. Consider consider how Jesus exercises gentleness and meekness. This is Isaiah chapter 42, the first three verses here. And this is the context of Jesus extending his kingdom spiritually in and through the church. This is Jesus' agenda in the world, right? Jesus is a conquering king. Yet here, the gentleness that defines Jesus' approach. Isaiah 42, 1 through 3, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. There's strength there, yet hear this. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So a smoldering wick, he doesn't even blow it out. Right, A broken twig, he doesn't even snap it all the way. That's the gentleness of Christ. As he's bringing forth justice to the nations, as he's conquering the world through the gospel, he's that caring. So, we're to pursue these six things. Just a couple of observations before we move on to the next verse. First, that pursuing virtue is the only way to flee from sin. He said, flee these things, pursue these things. And that's important. We fight sin not just by closing our eyes to it, by shutting our ears. We also pursue something in its place. The Christian life, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, is a taking off of the old man. It's a putting off of the old man and a putting on of the new man in Christ who's being renewed. If your problem is pornography, you don't defeat porn by unplugging your computer merely. That's necessary. But what else do you have to do? You have to choose in the fear of God to look at your sisters in Christ, if you're a man, looking at your sisters in Christ as image bearers, as people of value and worth, right? You have to pursue something positive. You have to pursue godliness in the place of sin. It's not enough to just close your eyes and shut your ears to sin. The only way to grow is to pursue something better. The Puritans 
used to talk about this in terms of what they called the expulsive power of a new affection. And that just means this. That means that when you have a new affection in your heart, when your affection for sin dwindles, when you fall out of love with sin, when you learn to hate your sin and you learn to love God and love obedience more, well, guess what? That has an expulsive power. That's going to push the sin out of your life. We have to learn how not only to flee from sin, but also to pursue something in its place. Second, pursuing virtue is not legalistic. That's important. Paul can say to Christians under the new covenant, people who are saved by grace, people who are dirty, rotten sinners, just like the rest of us, who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, he can say to them, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Sometimes I think we get such a narrow view of God's grace that we think that it's forgiveness only and not transformation. And so as soon as people start talking about spiritual growth, about obedience, people start getting nervous. They're saying, well, what, are you, what are you saying? Are you saying we're not saved by grace? Are you saying that, that we have to earn anything? No, Paul isn't saying anything like that. He's not saying that we have to earn anything. But God's grace not only forgives, it also changes and transforms. So for Paul to say this is not legalistic. Third observation, pursuing all these virtues only comes through abiding in Christ. And we mentioned that briefly, looking at the word faith. But if you're running from something, what are you running to? What are you taking hold of in its place? It's Christ. If you're abiding in Christ, you can bear these fruits, but you, you can't just pursue these things as abstractions. You really can't just sit under a tree and close your eyes and grasp, grit your hands, your, your teeth together and you know, make fists and you, your, your knuckles are white and, and you're just you're flexing and you're, you're, you're thinking to yourself, okay, righteousness, righteousness, or godliness, godliness. It's not the way that we bear fruit. We bear fruit by fixing our eyes on Christ, by taking hold of Christ. And keep in mind, that's where Paul's going because he gives us a powerful picture of the glorified Christ at the end of this. Pursuing virtue comes only through abiding in Christ. And just a final observation on this point before we move to the third point. Pursuing virtue involves means. So we're not just sitting there trying to bear fruit, just trying to pop it out. Mm, Okay, there we go, I'm godly now. There's means that are involved. There's methods. There's actions on our part. Prayer, study of scripture, regular Bible reading, and reflection, and meditation. The spiritual disciplines should not be neglected. Listen, you can't neglect the gym and neglect a healthy diet and then wonder why you're not hitting your fitness goals. Now, you're you're free to neglect those things, but then don't be surprised when you're not hitting your fitness goals, right? In the same way, if you look at your life as a believer and you're saying, I'm not growing in righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, then perhaps... You haven't been employing the means that God has given us. Make use of the spiritual disciplines. Avail yourself of the means of grace. Proverbs 12, 24 says, The hand of the diligent will rule. Be diligent in employing these means. There's a direct proportion between your input into your own spiritual growth and the output that you'll receive. And that's not always true perfectly, but by and large, 
the amount that you invest yourself into pressing into Christ, into making use of prayer, reading scripture, meditating on it, having quality fellowship where brothers and sisters in Christ are encouraging and challenging you and you're doing the same in in return for them. There's going to be a direct proportion between the amount of input you have into those areas and the output that you'll receive in your own spiritual growth. Flee worldly craving, pursue righteousness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So here's where we get into this this main command here. Fight the good fight of the faith. And that's the third imperative that we're looking at there in verse 12. Just a few observations about this statement. Fight the good fight of the faith. Faith is a straining effort. You see that here. He's using a an athletic metaphor, which we know that that Paul is a fan of. He talks about racing. He talks about fighting. The word that we get here, the the word fighting here, we we actually get the English word agony from, agonizo. So he's literally saying agonize the good agony. This is serious training. This is serious expenditure of energy. And he applies that metaphor to faith. Which is funny, because what are some of the metaphors and synonyms that we use for faith in our culture? We talk about faith as a personal journey, or my personal walk. Not saying those things are necessarily wrong, but it's interesting to me that we talk about faith as though it's a casual garden stroll with Jesus, and that he's just serenading us along the way. Whereas Paul says, it is a fight, it is combat, it is warfare. We fight against the flesh, our sin, our own sinful proclivities. We fight against the devil. There's unseen principalities and powers at work in the world. And we fight against the world. There's an unbelieving, ungodly culture of people that are lost under the deceit of sin. And we're supposed to push back on that. We fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we're not supposed to let our guard down. Faith is a straining effort. It's agony. And the second observation is that faith is a good fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. It's a good fight fight. It's supposed to be this way. It's so funny to me that when suffering comes into my own life that I'm surprised. And I think it's because our brains are still programmed like Adam's before the fall. We think that we're still living under that first covenantal arrangement with God in the Garden of Eden, right? We think that the world's a perfect place, and if I obey, I will live, and if I disobey, then I'll be cursed and die. We think that it's always going to just perfectly work out that way, that my obedience will result in blessing all the time. And it doesn't always work out that way. It didn't for Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life, yet he suffered the death of sinners. It didn't work out that way for Paul. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4-7 that he has fought the good fight. He finished the race. But look at Paul's life and his ministry. He was more faithful than any of us in this room are. And he was shipwrecked how many times? He was scourged how many times? This was his life. For some reason, we expect ease. We expect that when things are quote-unquote going right, then that'll mean a church with no conflict, with no fighting. That'll mean that my spiritual growth is just going to be a steady up and to the right progression without any setbacks along the way. We think that if there's controversy or struggle then that's a sign that we're doing something wrong. 
Things aren't going well. Why? Because there's a fight over here. And we reject the prosperity gospel. We reject the people that say, well, God just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. We're like, well, that's not true. But let's be honest. We have our own soft version of it. Because we think as soon as things are going poorly, that's a sign that we're doing something wrong. Maybe we are. But it's interesting that as the gospel goes out in the New Testament, the churches are messy. As the gospel goes out to places like Ephesus, where Timothy pastors, Paul has to write things like the book of 1 Timothy that says, beware, there's false teachers in your midst. This is the age of the apostles. We think, oh, if only we could go back there, things would be so much better. Well, they had their problems too. It's supposed to be messy. And so being at peace on this side of eternity, having no conflict, having a perfectly peaceful Christian life is not the right way to do it. Pacifism is not pious in itself. Following Christ inevitably means that at some point, and it doesn't mean you have to go out looking for a fight, but following Jesus faithfully does mean that you'll get dirt under your fingernails, that people will unfollow you, that church members will leave, they won't like you, that friends will abandon you, that your friends and your family will judge you, that your family will be judged, that your family will be wounded by other Christians. We're signing up for this. We have to adjust our expectations. I don't know everyone in this room who's served in the capacity, um, in any capacity in the, in the military. I, I do know we have some veterans in the room. When you're walking through a war zone, your expectations are different than when you're going on vacation, aren't they? If you walk through a war zone, but you're expecting a vacation, if you're, if you're expecting a retreat, a holiday in Kabul, and you're going to be surprised and discouraged and completely disaffected when the bombs and mortars start going off all around you because your expectations are off. But when you know you're walking into a war zone, then no matter how many bombs are going off around you, no matter how, no matter how many gunshots you feel whizzing by your head, what are you grateful for? Your life, the skin on your neck. We have to adjust our expectations of the Christian life. This is a war zone until the moment we see Christ in glory. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Until the moment that we're with Christ in glory, this is combat. So we don't get to leave a bad review for the place where we're staying, right? We don't get to say, why isn't this church? Why isn't my wife? Why isn't our denomination, you know, meeting my personal needs, making me feel good? I'm going to leave them a bad review on Airbnb or or TripAdvisor. That's not what we get to do. This is a war zone. And so we should adjust our expectations as we fight the good fight of faith. And then he encourages Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So fourth imperative, take hold of eternal life, verse 12. And again, he's not saying that we earn eternal life, right? Just like he wasn't being legalistic before. He's not saying that you have to earn or deserve it, right? Taking hold isn't the same thing as meriting something. God's grace gives us the gift of eternal life as a free gift. God's grace also gives us the ability to take hold of it, to open the present, to grasp onto eternal life. 
But it is an interesting statement. It's a little bit confusing because in what way are we supposed to take hold of eternal life if we already have it? And whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. If that's true of us, if we already have eternal life, then how am I supposed to take hold of it? It's a little bit of a puzzle. But I think there's three ways in which we can recognize that we still have to take hold of eternal life. First, there is an element of eternal life that is not yet ours. Paul, in writing to Titus, in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, says that we're saved in hope of eternal life. So there is a future expectation. All right, we have eternal life already, but we don't have the fullness of eternal life. We haven't been raised from the dead yet. We haven't been liberated from this body of sin yet. There is a a not yet. There is an already. There's a now, but there's also a not yet. We're not there yet. Second, there's also a way to maximize the way that we experience eternal life. We know that when we get into eternity, when we're with our Lord in heaven, there's going to be rewards. There's levels of rewards. Some of us are going to have a lot. Others of us won't have as many. And it will affect our capacity to enjoy it. Now, we will all be filled with joy. But some of our buckets for that pleasure and joy are going to be bigger than others. We're going to have different levels of capacity. So there is a way to take hold of eternal life fully, intentionally. There's a way to maximize the way that you receive and experience eternal life. And third, there's also a way to prove to ourselves and those around us that we have eternal life. Second Peter 110 says that we are to make our calling and our election sure. So you might be sitting here saying, well, I know I have eternal life. Good. Prove it to yourself and prove it to others by having a fighting kind of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Timothy was called to eternal life, not just when he heard the gospel preached, we call that the general call, but also he was called internally. The Holy Spirit at some point came alive and made it irresistible to him. That's the internal call. That's the effectual call. That's the call where the Holy Spirit comes and he says, no, you, you want this. He convinces you. And you know what this is like. If you've come to Christ, when you look back on that moment that you were saved, you know that there was a, there was a sense in which you were choosing Christ, but really there was another profound sense in which he was bringing you in. and You couldn't do anything to stop it. He was that irresistible. You knew that he had been chasing you and he caught you. And your heart changed. He called you. And it was so good you couldn't say no. This is the eternal life to which we have been called. And Paul says, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Which is probably a reference to Timothy's baptism. There was other people watching. Just like for us, there's other people watching. Hebrews 12.1, there's a cloud of witnesses, all of the saints of scripture, all of the saints of church history, all of the believers that we know here and now are watching. So if you're tempted to throw in the towel, if you're tempted to give up, what would the believers that you know say if they saw you walk away? How would they react? If that thought frightens you, if you wouldn't want to receive the scorn of others, if you're, te- if you're tempted to give up on Jesus, but you know that other believers would be discouraged. And, and, and why, are, why are you doing this? Remember that on your dark days. Call that to mind because there's a positive peer pressure there. There's such a thing as positive peer pressure. There's the accountability of the body of Christ. 
Timothy made the good confession. He confessed the faith in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul's saying, hey, remember, this isn't just you and Jesus, you know, somewhere in the privacy of your own home with every eye closed, every head bowed. This is a commitment that you made to follow Christ in front of everybody who's watching you. It's a good fight. So take hold of eternal life and the fifth command. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So there's several verses left, but there's only one commandment left. Paul gives this commandment to Timothy couched inside of this momentous doxology. Paul, if you know from reading the New Testament, is very fond of interrupting himself to give glory to God and to just break out in worship and song and poetry. And he kind of does that here too, but there's only one imperative left. So let's take a look at that. He can't even talk to Timothy without, uh, about the, the seriousness of ministry and of having a fighting faith without interrupting himself to, to bring glory to God. So he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from Reproach. So first he puts Timothy in the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of God. So imagine you're standing before God and you're Timothy and you hear these words. Here's your marching orders, Timothy. And he says, God who gives life to all things. And the word here could also be translated that he preserves alive all things. He sustains all things in life. And that's important for Timothy because Timothy is surrounded by a bunch of people who are tempted to think that godliness is a means of material gain. Paul told Timothy, just so you know, you can't take anything with you when you go out of this life, but if we have food and clothing, verse 8, with these we will be content. He's warning him not to love money, not to think that he has to sustain his own life. So there's the reminder here, just so you know, your paycheck that you're getting as a pastor, or whatever you're doing, Timothy, just so you know, that's not what's sustaining you. It's God who sustains you. God gives you all of the necessities of life, not your wealth. And he preserves his people alive. And that might mean more to Timothy than it does to us today. And that probably means more to believers in parts of the world that are persecuted than it means to us today. Because for most of human history, to follow Christ is really to take your life in your hands. And in much of the world today, to serve God in ministry is to take your life in your hands. Now, here we enjoy some peace. Here we enjoy a little bit of protection and freedom, though perhaps not for long. Steve Lawson, who's a pastor, he says, The problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them anymore. And that that is the problem with many of us, is that this place, the pulpit, the place where God's word is preached, should be a place where it takes courage to stand. There is a seriousness here. It should take courage to preach the word. If we are faithful to God's word in this culture, sooner or later we will be taking our lives in our hands, and maybe not our lives, but certainly our reputations, our friendships, our livelihood. But it's God who sustains. You can only be bold. You can only risk your own livelihood for the kingdom. You can only be courageous and take that stand if you have confidence that God sustains your life. 
I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So Timothy made the good confession at his baptism in front of a bunch of witnesses, and Jesus made the good confession in front of Pontius Pilate. And we all know how that went for Jesus. That brought him to the cross. In fact, there's two ways in which Jesus made this good confession. First, in his words themselves, he says to the high priest in Mark 14, 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Are you the Son of God? I am, referencing God's name, I am, Exodus 3, 14. And you will see the Son of Man, that's a, that's a divine figure in Daniel seven fourteen, seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven, a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus quotes three Old Testament texts in one sentence. He makes the good confession. I am the Son of God, he says, in effect, to the high priest. And it brought him to the second way in which he bore witness, which was his death itself. When Paul says that Jesus made this testimony before Pontius Pilate, that word before could also mean in the time of Pontius Pilate. So, Jesus testified in the time of Pontius Pilate, in the day of Pontius Pilate, not just in his words, but in his death itself. Jesus' death was the testimony. Jesus' death was his attestation to the truth. And this is relevant because Jesus fought the good fight. Jesus did not expect a life of ease. His testimony was costly. Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Timothy is supposed to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach. Well, what is the commandment? What does that refer to? What commandment? Well, he's summarizing everything he said up until this point. He's summarizing the whole epistle. There's a series of instructions for Timothy. But he's also just talking about the life that comes from believing in the gospel. Because remember, at the beginning of chapter 1, he said, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. So he's talking about a gospel lifestyle, as well as all these individual instructions to Timothy. So notice... He's conflating a couple of things that we tend to separate. He's saying these are really the same thing. One, he's conflating knowledge and obedience. We separate those. There's a difference between knowing and doing. But for Paul to Timothy, he's saying keep the commandment. Listen, the gospel is not just a creed. It's also a commandment. You can't believe in Jesus as Lord and as your Lord and Savior without doing something about it. So he conflates knowledge and obedience. To know the gospel is to do something about it. Timothy can't just be an intellect about it. He has to be willing to put shoe leather on his faith. And second, he conflates Timothy's ministry and his character. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Now pay attention. I know, there's, I know this is getting into the weeds, but, but this struck me as I was preparing. Those adjectives unstained, free from reproach. Those sound like they're describing a person, don't they? You talk about a person that, that, that is above reproach, right? You wouldn't talk about, you know, 
one of God's commands being unstained or free from reproach. Those are lifestyle adjectives, right? Describes how somebody lives. In fact, everywhere in the New Testament that these adjectives are used, they are personal. They're about the way that somebody lives. So why does Paul take them and say, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach? This gospel commandment, all of the charge to Timothy to take seriously as a man of God, what does that mean? Well, really, as Timothy keeps himself above reproach, then that's going to have an effect on his ministry, his preaching, the way he discharges his duties in the church, right? And at the same time, too, Timothy can't have a pure ministry without having also a pure life. See, Paul's mixing together these two concepts here between the minister and his character and the ministry work that he does. You can't be pure personally but have a nasty, impure ministry, right? One drags down the other. And you cannot have an impure personal life but have a ministry that's above reproach. The two do go hand in hand. He's equating them. So he's basically saying, ensure, Timothy, be sure that the biblical imperatives for Christian living, the commandment, maintain their integrity and purity. So how does he make sure that his message stays pure? He has to stay pure. That's why in chapter 4, verse 16, Paul had also said to him, keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So character and content both matter for the person in a position of ministry. We want to come in for a landing here. These five heavy charges that he gives. Flee worldly cravings. Pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life. Keep this commandment pure, unstained, free from reproach until the coming of Christ. And this is where he gets out of the what. Here's what you're supposed to do. We move away from the what. Here's the how. This is where we began this morning. How do you do these things? Okay, I'm tired. Monday morning's going to come tomorrow morning. How do I do these five things? And it comes by fixing our eyes on Christ. And so he breaks out into worship. And there's five ways that he extols, that he praises, that he magnifies the risen Christ that we should pay attention to because these are the means by which the man of God is brought to have a sort of fighting faith. He mentions the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking to his appearing. He's going to prove himself. Timothy, you're fighting false teachers, preaching a false Christ. Guess what? The true Christ is coming. He will prove himself. And as you minister, as you preach and teach, whether it's your children, whether it's the church, whether it's a Sunday school class or a life group, whether it's just you instructing yourself, the true Christ is coming. You're not on your own as you witness. You're not on your own as you teach. He will come. He will vindicate you. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Verse 15. The word sovereign here is where we get the word dynasty. He is the authority. He's the ruler. There's no better master. There's no one better to have as the judge of your life and your ministry. Are you getting discouraged? Are you finding it hard to fight? One day you'll be face to face with the blessed and only sovereign. the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And that's Jesus. Jesus, Revelation 1.5 says, is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Whatever you're afraid of, he's the authority over it. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. See, it's because he already rules the world that we go, that we have a fighting faith. He rules over our homes, and so we instruct our children. He rules over our church, and so we instruct and encourage ourselves. He rules over your workplace, and so you live on mission there. He rules over the schools, and so you represent Christ there faithfully. He rules over the government, and so so we plead with the government to rule in a way that pleases God. He's not just waiting to be Lord at his return. He already is Lord. His reign doesn't just start then. It's consummated then. So how do we have a fighting faith by asserting and believing and trusting in the lordship of Christ, king of kings and lord of lords, whom no one has seen, he mentions. He has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. But look in verse 16 here. He says, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Remember Moses encountering the glory of God in Exodus. In Exodus 33, verse 18 through 23, he says, show me your glory. And what does God say? He says, no. No one can see my glory and live. He says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to turn my back. I'm going to cover you with my hand. And then I'll let you see a little bit of my glory. But if I showed you the whole effulgence of my beauty, you would die. Jesus is the glory of God. In Jesus, we see the glory of God, but there is this real sense in which no one has fully seen God's glory. His visible display. And he says to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And that's what we should be about. If we want fame, we should desire Christ's honor instead. If we want control, we should desire his dominion instead. So how do we discharge these commands? How do we make sure we're not coasting in the Christian life? How do we make sure we fight, that we flee worldly cravings? How do we pursue righteousness? How do we fight the good fight of faith? How do we take hold of eternal life? How do we keep the command unstained and free from reproach? How do we adjust our expectations so that we know that we're living in a combat zone? We do it by fixing our eyes on the glorified Christ. We recognize that we come before him in all of his glory. We will be face-to-face with him one, one day. And so whether we're members, whether we're the whole church assembled, whether we occupy a position of leadership in the church, let's fix our eyes on Christ and fight the good fight of the faith. Father, thank you for your word. Make it come alive in our hearts. Help us to live in light of what you've showed us this morning. And help us to worship you now with pure hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.